Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Tim Challies. He's a pastor, author, speaker, and he's written several books, and including the one we're going to talk about today, Seasons of Sorrow. And the subtitle is The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. And this book is is amazing. It's heartbreaking, but it's so full of wisdom, so full of hope. So I'm excited to have Tim on the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Once in a generation, a podcast comes along with the power and eloquence to inspire us all. This show will entertain you while you wait for that one. Join two best friends, author and former history teacher John Driver and comedian Johnny W. for hilarious and authentic conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. You can listen to Talk About That wherever you find your podcasts or at lifeaudio.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Welcome, Tim Challies. Thanks for having me. So, Seasons of Sorrow. Uh, oops, this book is amazing. Uh, I read it the other day, and it was it's so powerful. But before we get into the, the details of the book, can you just tell us, um, if you will, if you, if you can just tell us what happened to your son, Nick? Sure. Yeah, so uh, Nick was a seminary student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was 20 years old, had just gotten engaged to a sweet girl named Rin, and was looking forward to life ahead. He was um, an ARA, an assistant resident advisor in his uh, his residence at college. And uh, together with the rest of his, his hall, Uh, there's a boys hall and a girls hall that are sort of twins. So they went out together to play a a game at a nearby park. And as he was playing the game for reasons that remain really unknown to us, uh, simply his, his heart stopped and he collapsed to the ground and uh, students tried to resuscitate him and uh, passing doctor tried and eventually paramedics tried and doctors and there's nothing that could be done. And so just very suddenly, unexpectedly without reasons we've been able to uh, understand he was with the Lord. And how, how soon did, were you contacted? So um, we got a text message actually from a young man who uh, has since become our son-in-law, married my daughter, 
but he texted just to say that Nick had collapsed and he didn't know what was going on, but he just thought we would want to know. And so we immediately just started getting a little bit alarmed. Um, of course, we never have allowed our minds to jump all the way to, to that. Um, but yeah, we, we got that text message and then Abby was there. My daughter was there as well. And um, many of Nick's friends were there. This was his, his peer group who were uh, there with him. And so they started contacting us and then, over time, the news got more and more alarming, and then eventually a doctor called from the hospital to say that uh, he was gone. And you say in your and you say in the prologue of the book, you say writing is how I reflect, how I meditate, how I chart life's every journey. So when the sorrow was still new in my heart, when the tears were still fresh in my eyes, when I barely knew up from down, uh, when I barely knew up from down and here from there, I began to write. So tell me how, so writing, writing this book was kind of a way for you to process this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Writing was, as it pertains to the book, it really was my therapy in a sense. It was my way of thinking things through, working things through. Um, writing's always been it, the, the way I think, the way I process things. Um, it's really my form of meditation. So I got a very poor memory and um, I just can't hold a lot in there at once. And then I don't remember things often over a long time. And so writing is just how I record my thoughts. That way I can come back to them. I can, can remember what I know or I can remember what I believe. Um, so it's, it's the way I chew things over and then the way I, I sort of record things so I can remember them. And so um, just even as we were on our way down to um, Louisville to, to be with our daughter and almost daughter-in-law, et cetera. I was already writing just as my way of trying to work through what was, what was going on. And you, you broke up the book into four parts, fall, winter, spring, and summer. What was, what's the idea, idea behind that? So the writing, that, that's the, where the writing took place in those seasons. Yeah. Yes. But there's a little more to it than that in that the seasons, at least where I live here in Canada are, have symbolic value as well. Um, fall being the season of death and decay and, you know, where you're, you're going from the season of life to the season of coldness, then winter is the season where that's at its worst, in a sense, you know, nobody goes outside, it's just too cold to, to do things, etc. But then spring brings the promise of new life and the summer is a season of fruitfulness. And so I thought the, as the meditations went on over the course of the year, they began to match the seasons in that that's sort of the process of grief is initially you're in this period of just disbelief and you're not really functioning very well that maybe correlates with fall and then winter the the hardest seasons come a little bit after your tragedy after losses the reality sinks in but then over time you begin to grapple with it and come to terms with it and then eventually hopefully you're you're progressing to something that's um, you know, a new normal. You never go back to the, the person you were after a deep grief. You never go back to, to that same person, but hopefully you, you get your bearings and you, you press on. So I, I should say that as I started writing, I wasn't writing a book. I was just writing meditations, but over the course mm -hmm. of many months, as I was writing these things, I began to think, well, maybe I could collect them into a book format. Yeah. And I'm assuming that this whole process of writing this was very not only comforting to you, but also cathartic. I mean, is that, would you say yeah. that's true? Yeah. Some of my, my best moments and some of my worst moments were while I was writing. Um, it was very, very hard to write for, for obvious reasons because I was dealing with 
something that is the the greatest sorrow I've known in life. Um, But on the other hand, it really was cathartic. It really was helpful just as I pondered these things. And eventually I, I couldn't just record, here's what I'm feeling. I had to interpret it according to scripture. And so I think just about every chapter, there's some sort of resolution. And I wasn't I wasn't writing a book for other people. I was just recording my thoughts in real time, but always trying to push myself beyond, okay, I'm sorrowful, but what am I going to do with the sorrow? Or how is God at work through the sorrow? What's the meaning behind it? Yeah, and you mentioned this in your book, later in your book, about kind of being grounded and rooted in scripture and how important that is in this kind of, in in terms of loss. Uh, Talk about that a little bit, because just your perspective on this was so shaped by your, your, um, you know, being grounded in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would not want my moment of greatest grief to be the moment that I'm grappling with core truths or some of the most foundational truths of the Christian faith. So, um, I had the privilege of being raised in a context that was theological, being trained in catechisms, you know, the the Heidelberg catechism, the shorter catechism and so on, and really grounding, uh, being grounded in, in sound doctrine. And so when this great tragedy overtook me, I didn't have to think about, well, is God sovereign? Was God somehow involved in this? Was this God's will? I, I had established answers to those sorts of questions long before. I, I didn't have to grapple with the character of God. Is God really good? Or co- could God be out to harm me or to hurt me in some way? And so I was so thankful to have had many of those things settled in the past. And so when this this time came, this time of loss and grief, it, of course, there was still a lot to learn, but really it was the time to enact my theology, to just mm. put into practice what had been fairly abstract. And so I'm, I've just been so thankful over the last couple of years as I've reflected on this, just how God had prepared me simply by my knowledge of his His word. Yeah, and you just mentioned, you know, could God have been out to hurt me? And you have, there's a, a chapter I think it's chapter 11. It's called, I fear God and I'm not afraid of God. Tell, tell us what you mean by that. Actually, the title is I fear God and I am afraid of God. Um, not oh, I'm sorry. And I'm I am afraid, afraid of God. God. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I got that wrong. Um, no, it's fine. And the, the point of the chapter is that it's good to, to be in fear of God. You know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, we're told mm-hmm. in Proverbs. And so there's a right form of, of fear. And that, that fear is an awareness of the difference between God and ourselves. You know, it really begins with God's divinity and our humanity. God is this great, big, divine figure with these little puny, dust-made human beings. And so we rightly fear him. But I think after we go through a, a great sorrow in life, we, we come to a new assessment of God's power. Uh, we, we come to a deeper understanding that this really is God's world and he's really up to things that, that can take us by surprise or that may be exactly opposite of what we would have wanted in life. And, um, you know, I naturally assumed as any dad would that my son would outlive me, that he would have this long future or, or something. But the reality is that God had purposes in Nick's life that were very different from my own. And, I had to to just bow the knee and yet still being afraid at times. If God was going to ask me to do this, what else might God ask me to do? And so 
you know, the fear of God in that sense mm -hmm. of the assessment of who God is, but also that, that fear that I'm really not my, the, I'm really not in charge of this life. And God really is up to things that are, are bigger and greater than we might, uh, might imagine. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey there, it's Carly Mercoulier, host of Therapy and Theology, a weekly podcast that explores popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com. Yeah, and you, you, in, in one of your chapters, I'll get the title right of the chapter, chapter is called In the Deepest Darkness, and you talk about kind of being in this fog. What, what was that like? Yeah, a mutual friend uh, set us up with another couple um, that she knows as well in our area. And we met with them maybe two months or so after after Nick passed away. And they had also endured the loss of a child a number of years prior. And the first question she had for us was, are you still in the stage of grief brain, she called it. And there was something really affirming about that question in that after our loss, our we were in a kind of fog, a mental, emotional, spiritual kind of fog for quite some time. It took a long time to emerge from it. And I don't know if it's a protection mechanism built, built into our humanity or something, but for a time, it was just very, very difficult to do life, to do normal things in life. We were really just incapacitated by our sorrow. And I think um, that's what I'm trying to reflect on in that chapter is trying to give a perspective or a, um, try to show people, portray to people what that's like to, to just lose your capacity to do normal life. Um, we're just, we can be so overwhelmed by the traumatic experiences we go through. Yeah. And um, actually just going back to, I, I'm, a, I'm afraid, I fear God and I'm afraid of God. You mentioned that, you know, cause it's like Joe, but you mentioned um, that, you know, could, could it be that Nick's death is God's discipline towards me? Was Nick an idol? So how, how did you process through all of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the way I worked through that. And so after Nick's death, some of my first thoughts were essentially centered around me. Did, did I do something that caused this? Is this, as you said, some, some way that God is punishing me. And the way I worked through that was to essentially take myself out of the center of this universe that God has made, which is our, our natural human disposition to put ourselves in the center of all things. And to realize that it doesn't seem like, you know, God reveals who he is and how he works in the world. It doesn't seem that God would, would act like that. Nick was his own person. He stood before the Lord as his own individual it seems unlikely or unlike the character of God that I would have done something and God would have responded by you know, punishing my whole family, taking Nick away from us and so on. And so mm -hmm. once I pulled myself out of the center and sort of re-enthroned God in my mind, I could see, well, this must be God's purposes somehow working in this situation. And God's purposes were clearly different than my own. And I'm going to respond in two ways. I'm either going to shake my fist at the skies and say, God, you've done wrong. Or I'm going to bow the knee to God and say, this is your world. Nick was your creation. You have the right to, to act in this world as you see fit. And I'll just, I'll bless your name just as you referenced Job earlier. You know, the mm -hmm. Lord gave, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah. And, you, and, and then you have another chapter called, What Do You Do With Grief? 
Can you talk about a little bit about that chapter and um, what do what does a person do with grief? Yeah, that that chapter came out of trying to figure out how to pray for my wife and daughters, really, and realizing that I know nothing about grief. You know, I had gone through some sad situations in life. My father had passed away a year prior, and um, you know, we we all endure griefs and losses, but I don't think any of us are really experts at it. We're always learning what it means to grieve and what that that process or time of grief looks like, and what's realistic as we begin to emerge into this this new normal. And so I was just trying to reflect on what what should I expect? What should I pray for on behalf of my daughters, on behalf of my wife? What, what's realistic to hope for? And in the end, I, I just really wanted to, to focus on praying that God would help them to accept what had happened as his will, that they wouldn't rebel against God's will and think they know better how to, how to run this universe than God does. Um, that they would, again, just bow the knee and submit to him in his sovereignty, and that they would then take hold of this as God's, something God has given each of them as something precious, as precious grief he's asking them to carry from this moment until they go to be with him. And what are they going to do with that grief? How can they serve him with this, as stewarding something very, very difficult, but I'm sure very precious to God as well. And how have they have they dealt with that well? Yeah. Yeah. I've been very, very proud of Aileen and the girls. They, they've just thrived under the, this sorrow. They've really um, each just committed that I'm going to go on in service to the Lord. This isn't going to, this isn't going to be the end of my relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to shake my fist at the sky and, and disown him and say, if you ask me to do this sort of thing, I'm not interested anymore. And I don't want to take for granted that that would have been the reaction because for, for many people it is, you know, they're happy mm-hmm. to follow God as long as times are good. But when something happens like this, they may just run away. And uh, we've just really committed together as a family. We will stay faithful to the Lord. We will continue to love him and serve him, maintain our faith in him. And we will just really believe and look forward to a, a great reunion to come. Yeah. And you mentioned stewarding and you have a, you have a chapter called stewarding sorrow. Talk about that a little bit. How, how does one steward sorrow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we're going to understand stewardship, we need to understand sovereignty. And so God's sovereignty is the doctrine that this is God's world. And there's nothing that happens in this world apart from the will of God. That doesn't mean that God commits sin, of course, or forces anyone to commit sin. But nothing happens in this world that God doesn't decree, permit, however you want to understand that. And so if, if that's true, if, if even difficult things, hard things, grievous things are somehow within the, the sphere of God's sovereignty, then we can understand that in some way God means for us to have these things. And so Nick's death wasn't some unfortunate circumstance. It wasn't Satan pulling one over on, on the Lord, you know, just kind of getting away with one. Uh, It wasn't that God was asleep at the wheel when this happened. Somehow this was his will for Nick's life. He knows the number of our days. He knows the number of Nick's days that they were far fewer than we, we would have thought. And so what are we going to do with that? Receive that and then just turn it outward in, in love for God and service to his people. And I think each one of us can attest that this has been the story of our lives, that people have endured very difficult circumstances 
-hmm. And through that, they've been just wonderfully equipped to minister to us in our sorrows. I think any of us can say this. I often think of someone like Johnny Erickson Tata, who could have, um, you know, gone through her experience of being paralyzed. And that's it just remained as bitter as she was at first and just said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not following the Lord anymore. I'm just going to do it in bitterness. But instead, she chose to receive that as God's will for her life. And what has she done? She spent her whole life loving, serving, blessing people. That is stewardship. She took the hardest thing God had given her, and she she chose to embrace it rather than fight it. And in our sorrows, I'm sure God's calling us to do much the same, to bless others and to be prepared to minister to them. Yeah, and in the book, you go through kind of, uh, the kind of a, uh, a list of prominent Christians who, who had, who lost children and who lost grandchildren. And so, um, you know, it kind of gives you sort of perspective on, on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not alone in our sorrows. And I think it's really important and really comforting to understand that, that there are many Christians who have endured great sorrows. So we think about John Owen, the, the great Puritan writer and this man who, created this massive body of work that's been so helpful to so many generations of Christians. I think he lost 10 of his children or something. So there's a man who underwent a terrible, terrible affliction, but it wasn't the end of his service to the Lord. He didn't let it knock him off course. He continued to love and continued to serve. And you, you see this again and again. So in those early days of your grief, you really do wonder what what's left for me and how can I carry on with this? When you're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, you can you can learn from them and uh, and grow from their example. And then how much more so when there are living people who can come alongside you. But again, especially people the Lord has somehow equipped by enduring a, a similar sorrow. They can come right along beside you and share their experience and just give you that look you in the eye and assure you, you can do this and you can emerge from this better, stronger, still sad, of course, Uh, you know, you'll never lose that sorrow, but you can turn that sorrow into service for the Lord. And you have a, a chapter, and this was a particularly poignant chapter. And, and um, I, I just love the idea of what you just using the term the dash and it's the, the title of the chapter is how long is the dash and it's about nick's gravestone can you talk about that kind of that how how you looked at that and and the dash that was sort of a i guess a thought experiment of sorts but it, it came to mind as we were visiting the cemetery after they had finally installed nick's nick's gravestone and so for months, we've been visiting a spot in the earth where we knew he was buried, but there's no, no marker there. Then at last, they, you know, we ordered it. At last, it was delivered and installed. And now we had this, this stone. And I just started to think about that little dash that encompasses a life, you know, the dash that comes before the date of birth and the, the date of death. And I started to imagine, well, what if that dash was proportional to the length of the, the life we lived. And so somebody who lived for a very short time would have a very short dash. Somebody who lived for a hundred years would have a very long dash. And old Methuselah from the Old Testament would have an extremely long mm-hmm. dash. And then just sort of comparing that to eternity, this dash that would go on and wrap around the earth again and again and again, which is what God promises, right? That uh, as the poet says, one short sleep past, we wake eternally and death shall be no more. And so just pondering 
eternity and comparing that now to our little experience here on earth. And you start to think, well, the difference between somebody who lives out his, his full 80 years that the Bible suggests is a, the span of a human life uh, versus somebody who lives only a quarter of that, only 20, is such a minor difference when compared to the eternity to come. Yeah, and that's that's what I, one of the biggest takeaways from the book was just your eternal perspective and seeing. I mean, as the Bible says, this life is a mist; it's a vapor, and you you really stressed the kind of this eternal perspective, which I thought was so helpful. Yeah, I, that, that was so precious to me. And you know, as Christians, we have we have such hope. God is so kind to us to give us hope beyond this life. And I've, I've said so often, I don't know how I would have endured this without my faith. And, you know, I know many non-Christians who have, who've lost a loved one and they do endure it as well. But um, to have that true hope, that firm confidence that's grounded in the word of God, but it's grounded ultimately in the historic fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his resurrection being the, the down payment on our own. And so seeing, knowing that Christ was dead and rose and lives forever now, that's the proof. That's all the proof we need that we too will die and be resurrected and, and live forever. So that eternal perspective is so comforting and, and such a blessing. And, you know, it reminds me of we're just past the, in the Christian world now, there's, there's all these stories that were coming up about people who visited heaven, right? Say put it in quotes there they visited heaven and so we had all these books about you know i went to heaven and i came back and the, the first one to write one of those books in recent memory was don piper not john piper don mm -hmm. piper and he wrote his book 90 minutes in heaven and he started calling himself the minister of hope and the hope he gave was that he had been to heaven and so believe him he's been to heaven and now you can have confidence that heaven is real well if you're not going to believe jesus christ you've got no business believing Don Piper or anyone else. You know, our hope is not found in other people who can bring stories of, of having been there. And nobody seemed to notice that all the stories contradicted one another. They all had completely different versions of what heaven was like and what the experience was like. Our hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he didn't rise, our faith is completely just a waste of time. But if he did rise, we have the absolute greatest hope when we can look forward to, to eternity with him. Yeah. I just, I just thought of Paul saying, you know, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And yeah. it's just like when you have that hope and I always talk about this, just, you know, no matter that, I mean, obviously I had, I haven't gone through something like you have, but, no, no matter what the circumstances of my life are and how, you know, some days are difficult, some seasons are difficult. There's this impenetrable layer of rock in my gut that is just, it's, it's a layer of joy that cannot be shaken because I know what, I know the end of the story. I know where I'm going. I know, I, I know what eternity is going to look like. And so or I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I have a, a pretty good idea. So that is such a comfort to, mm -hmm. to Christians. It's such a comfort to know that and to know that Nick is in the is with Christ right now in the presence of the Lord right now mm -hmm. is such a deep, deep comfort. It is. Yeah. And, and we have to 
remember contextually when Paul wrote about his light momentary afflictions, he was suffering very heavy and very long afflictions. These were not, so it wasn't a hangnail that he was experiencing yes. here. He was being treated terribly. Yeah. And, and, and yet, so he could only say it was light and momentary if he was looking to something that was weighty and eternal, right? And then just drawing that comparison. And so he wasn't saying to any of us that what you feel is inconsequential. He was saying, just shift your gaze to what you said before, that eternal perspective. And now you'll be able to just believe, I just need to endure this for a short time. And the depth of the pain I feel right now, someday I'll say that's light compared to the, the fullness of the glory, the fullness of the joy I'll experience. Mm -hmm. so I like to think of Paul in that. Just it's like he's reaching into heaven. There's these storehouses of hope and joy in heaven. And he's just sort of reaching into heaven and just grabbing handfuls of it that's going to sustain him here on earth. And you can only do that if you've got that eternal perspective. Yeah. And you on page um, 152, I just want to quote this. It's in the chapter called Ministry of Sorrow. You say, through this ministry of sorrow, I can testify before a skeptical, skeptical world that one who praises God in the giving can also praise him in the taking, that one who honors God in the times of great joy will still honor him in times of great loss. I can bear witness that faith can survive sorrow, that we can be content even in loss, that when we are weak, we are truly strong, for it is when we are weak that he provides us with his strength. That's powerful. Talk about that for a minute. So I wanted to, to affirm that God is sovereign in this world, that God is building something. He's doing something in this world and he's using all of us to do it. God's, God's creating something in this world that's meant to showcase his glory. And he does that through the church. And so God is equipping each one of us to take up our, our place in his, in his world, in his, you know, in this thing he's building. And he equips us in different ways. There's some fantastically wealthy people in the world and their gift from God is to be wealthy and to use that wealth to, to love and serve others. There's people who ascend to very high positions in the world and that's their gift from God. And he, he asks them to steward it faithfully. And then there's some people who go through deep sorrows. And again, that's just God's way of fitting them to, to the ministry he's called them to take up. And so again, our, our task then is to steward that faithfully, to receive it from God and to, to use it for the good of others and the glory of, of his name. And yeah, so that ministry of sorrow is really what I was focusing on in that chapter. How am I going to receive this and how am I going to, to use this? Yeah. And um, well, well, oh, actually, I, I was going to say, let's talk about, um, yeah, yeah, I was going to say this is the last thing, but it's the penultimate thing I was, I want to talk about. You, you talk about in chapter 36, my most precious possession, and I love this chapter. Talk about what, what that possession is and, and what you did with that. Yeah, uh, it's sitting right here beside me, just off camera. You can't see it, but got a little display case here. And uh, my father-in-law built for me. And within that display case is. Oh, is that, can we see it, it now? Yeah. No. Okay. No, no, here. I'll, I'll, okay. nah, I don't think I can drag it over. Okay. Um, display case, my father-in-law built and within it is Nick's Bible. And um, I given him that Bible and he went off to seminary indicated that he wanted to spend his lifetime preaching and pastoring people. So I gave him a, 
a Bible. And yeah, it's a, it's just a precious, precious object that reminds me of my boy and I keep it close at hand and uh, keep it open to uh, the great chapter in first Corinthians about the resurrection. And yeah, and it would say first Corinthians 15, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so it lays open to that and on days and there are many of them when I'm just really sorrowful, really not feeling, not feeling the joy I can go and I can look at it or I can take it on my lap and I can read it. And there are these words that, that again, just ground us in what Christ has done. And because that is true, therefore we can believe that Nick is as alive as he's ever been. And the time is coming when I'll, I'll be joining him. Yeah. Amen. Um, and then the last chapter is called well done, good and faithful dad. What, what do you mean by this? Yeah, I, I talked there about how when Nick was younger, I sort of developed this vision. One thing that was always so important to me, it still is, is to live a life of integrity before my children. And um, by the end of my life to, you know, we, we look forward to dying and, and arriving in heaven and hearing that well done, good and faithful servant that's promised to those who love the Lord and are, are faithful to his purposes. I just thought how lovely to first hear my children say, well done, good and faithful dad. And so it was sort of this vision I developed for life to have my children sort of bless me out and God bless me in. And um, I'd imagine Nick as my firstborn being the one to do that. But of course, now uh, he's waiting for me. And so uh, just sort of developed the second thought, which is maybe arriving in heaven and of course, looking forward to the, the commendation of the Lord, but also of my son and just landing there and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful dad. And so that's a uh, sort of imaginative telling of my, my arrival in heaven mm -hmm. and just trying to, again, convey the hope and the joy we have as Christians as a sure confidence that, uh, that there's true joy to come. Amen. Well, we're going to leave it there. The book, guys, is Seasons of Sorrow. I, I highly encourage you to get this. Uh, it's, it's so uh, beautifully written. It's beautiful. And it's uh, also very, um, uh, it's just very encouraging. So, um, and also tell us where, because you still do a blog, right? Mm -hmm. And so where yeah. can people find, find your blog? Yeah, they can find me at challies.com. I post something new there every day. That's C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. And then you can get information about the book there or just go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books and you should be able to track it down. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this story with us. You're very welcome. All right. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.